Well, let's get this party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin, and this is Matins. It's a St. Francis podcast, and we're talking about this season, what, uh, how do you be an Anglo-Catholic? And so we'll be uh, getting into that today, and we'll talk about uh, the Eucharist. But before we get there, um, if you would like to contact me, you can always email me at frmatkin at priest.com. Also, of course, you can comment down below on YouTube. If you're listening on uh, Apple or Spotify, please give us a rating and review so we can help get uh, noticed. And on YouTube, if you bless that like button and also subscribe to the channel to see more of this kind of stuff. Well, where have we been so far? So we started out with, uh, you know, what an Anglo-Catholic is. If you haven't been uh, considering that, maybe go back and take a look and, and we'll answer that question for you. The other one is um, you got to have faith. you got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. you got to follow Him as Savior and Lord. And you got to be baptized. you got to be incorporated into Christ, made a part of His church. And... Um, and then, you know, after that, what am I supposed to do? What, what are my Christian duties? Oh, and you got to be confirmed. That's another thing. Um, when you grow up into your faith, you got to be in touch with the apostles and their descendants, the bishops. And by the way, if you're coming from another Christian tradition, um, if you were baptized as a Presbyterian or whatever, um, then the way you come into the church is to be confirmed by the apostolic laying on of hands and confirmation. And so we recognize your baptism as valid and everything was done according to the rules and regulations about using the right matter, which is water, uh, the right form, which is saying, uh, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then we just connect you to the apostles with the laying on of hands. Uh, we see this in for example, in, in the book of Acts, I don't have the reference in front of me, but uh, some of those are baptized by the deacon, uh, Philip, and um, they need to be incorporated fully into the church and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so the, the apostles were sent down to, to do that for them, and so that's what we do in confirmation. And we talked about our Christian duties, and we'll sort of uh, begin to zero in on some of those. So today we're going to talk about the Eucharist. And remember that for Catholics, it is the Mass that matters, the unbloody representation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So you have something that is a moment in time, but which touches all time. So even though Jesus, the, the Word of God, the Logos, the divine Logos from before all ages, came down from heaven, was in flesh. That's what incarnate means, enfleshed. The first chapter of John says that he, he pitched his tent among us. Uh, he came to live and die as a human being. He entered into our space, and in doing so, he didn't neglect all other time and space. He still relates to us in that eternal sense of God, and when you think about, um, it's interesting, there's, um, there's two phrases, eternal life and everlasting life. And I believe that they're used at the discretion of the English translator to figure out how he wants to render the same Greek original. But there's a, a subtle but very distinct difference between the two, at least in my mind. Everlasting life 
to me, says, you know, life that continues on and on and doesn't stop. Whereas eternal life is something a little bit different. Whereas everlasting kind of keeps your perspective within linear time, eternal is more stepping outside of time. And that's where God is. That's in God's realm. That's outside of the material universe. But when Jesus, when, when the Logos comes in and becomes uh, the human being, Jesus, then he enters into time and space. He enters into his material creation. And he wants to connect with us on both a spiritual and physical, material way. And so he pitched his tent among us and dwelt among us and um, humbled himself even unto death, death on a cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him. Before we go any further, let's pray, because I forgot to pray. And in fact, we were going to do this podcast uh, yesterday, but things just didn't uh, work out right. And that was, uh, that was a little stroke of grace, I think, because um, of two things. Uh, first is today is the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels, or we call it Michaelmas. It's one of those uh, several musses out there like Christmas. And uh, so we want to uh, say the collect for the day and also uh, wish, because uh, he's probably watching or listening at some point, say hi to Father Christopher Cantrell, who is uh, driving his El Camino all the way to Spain again. Um, you know, he's, he's going on the uh, Camino de Santiago to go pay uh, homage to uh, the Apostle James. And we'll talk uh, probably in some further episode about this idea of pilgrimage and what that's all about. But as for Michaelmas, let us pray. O everlasting God, who hast ordained and constituted the services of angels and men in a wonderful order, mercifully grant that as thy holy angels always do thee service in heaven, so by thine appointment they may succor and defend us on earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So a blessed Michaelmas to all of you, uh, and may the ministry of the holy angels always be your guide and protection. Interestingly, the, uh, the prayer about uh, a guardian angel uh, talks about ruling and guiding, um, kind of shepherding us through life, not just, uh, you know, being a defensive you know, blocking those who are going to come tackle us, but, uh, but those who are coming in to uh, uh, point us in the right direction and, and help us make our way on our pilgrimage toward heaven. And the holy angels have different jobs, and their, their identity is so unique and wrapped up in what they do um, that we talk about different choirs of angels. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas talked about different angels are basically their own species. They're so unique. Um, and of course, they don't have physical attributes to distinguish them like uh, different species of creatures on earth. But also, there are a whole class of angels whose job is simply to adore the Lord. And so, for example, uh, Isaiah in his vision in chapter 6 um, sees two cherubim. Uh, in the temple, surrounding God's throne, calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. We use that as, it's called the sanctus. We use it in the Eucharistic liturgy right before uh, the canon begins. So their job is just to, oh, sorry, those are the seraphim. Uh, their job is just to surround 
God with praise and adoration nonstop. In fact, they're called seraphs, which means fire, and God is a consuming fire. So it's almost like they're so close to God, they have to be fire themselves in order to get that close. But other angels, they have the same job of being just with God all the time, surrounding Him with praise. And so we believe that uh, at least one angel is appointed to watch over every holy place, every church, every shrine, every sanctuary, especially where uh, the Blessed Sacrament is reserved, so that he's always attended to and hallowed with praise by his servants. Very often, of course, by, by his human servants, but even when they're not there 24-7, there's always um, a spiritual servant there, uh, ready to hallow God with praise. Well, we want to talk about the Mass, and of course, um, the, the angels um, are very good at attending to uh, the praise of God at Mass, um, whether the liturgy is going on or not. The other thing I'm excited to uh, bring to your attention is that uh, today I just uploaded the first of a series of uh, videos, um, and this is the demonstration of the traditional ceremonial uh, for the Eucharistic liturgy. So this is um, basically the, the way things evolved in the West as far as, you know, um, when does the priest make the sign of the cross and, and um, how does he hold his hands at different parts and what, which way does he turn and, and what part of the altar does he do this, that, or the other on. Um, all of that became sort of crystallized into a common form uh, and it, there were variations in different places. Um, for example, the serum use in Salisbury, England, was the dominant use among several. Um, and also different religious orders have their own use, the Dominicans and the Franciscans and, and Benedictines and so on. But they're pretty much the same, like 90% the same. And so um, ceremonial guides have been written to help uh, priests um, make sure they, they get it right and they do everything according to the custom, customary way that has evolved over the centuries. And so for Anglicans, there's, there's two big ones. One is called Ritual Notes, and there's uh, 11 editions um, corresponding to different changes here and there or different new situations. Um, and then there's another one called Anglican Services, uh, which is a, a little bit more handy as kind of a, just a pull-off-the-shelf resource. Um, I think. And uh, we, maybe we'll look into um, putting out a new edition that conforms to the, the updated 2019 prayer book. But here we have a demonstration on video of the traditional ceremony for Mass. So this one is without any commentary or break, or it's just straight through watching. Um, and then we'll do another one that is interrupted by commentary by, by instruction. So I will come on the screen and I will say, so this is how you fold up the corporal and this is, you know, this is how you do this, this is how you do that. And then you'll see the demonstration of that acted out in the liturgy. So we'll have that version that comes out. We'll also have another one that is like the one released today where it's just uh, the video of the liturgy uninterrupted, but you'll have a voiceover that is an instructed Eucharist. So it will describe the things that are happening and where did they come from. So, you know, in the 5th century, this prayer was added, and uh, this is the symbolic reference and those kinds of things.
So I'm very excited about that. Also, as far as the tutorial, we'll do another version just for servers, for acolytes. Um, a lot shorter and more to the point of what they do. You know, when are you supposed to move the missile? Where are you supposed to stand? How are you supposed to do the washing of the hands? And all that kind of stuff that you need to know. Because there's a lot to kind of keep track of. And it's nice to have a presentation on video where you can hear it and see it. And it's all right there. So look for those um, additional videos in probably October sometime. I want to get that out before too long. It's been a long time in putting this original together uh, in doing the, the footage and getting the editing uh, just right and so on. So today we want to talk a little bit just about the mass. It's the mass that matters. And the question is, does it matter to you? And why should it? I've been trying to think of an analogy. Um, so I've got a, a couple ideas. First is, in fact, Paul kind of uses this of a, of a testament, the New Testament, a new covenant with us. But there's also in the sense of like a last will and testament. And uh, Paul talked about, you know, we are the, like the heirs in the family who have been bequeathed Jesus's last will and testament. And so like some, you know, man's dying wish uh, is generally given great, great importance, great reverence um, and deference for those who come after. Even if it's not a, in the nature of a divine command for those who write a last will and testament, uh, it's almost treated as such by those who come after and those who are entrusted with carrying out that person's will. And so there's an analogy there that Jesus left us a will and testament and, in fact, divine commands, and we should carry them out. And one of those was, do this in remembrance of me. Or perhaps in a better translation, do this as my commemoration or as my memorial. And there's an analogy with the Last Supper and the Exodus and the Passover Seder because the people in the Old Testament were commanded to repeat this ceremony of the Seder meal, that Last Supper before they departed Egypt the next day and were spared from the plagues and the angel of death when he saw the doorpost marks with the blood was indicated to pass over that home and spare those people. And so it was, of course, a way of getting, giving thanks to God and praising Him, but also developing a ritual to memorialize the situation uh, so you could always kind of go back and revisit it in a mystical way, enter into it again. The Greek term that's used for this uh, remembrance is anamnesis or anamnesis, and it's, it's a mystical thing where you, you span the breadth of time and go back to the moment and become a part of it again. So even though we material human beings on a linear timeline are separated by so much distance, yet we can span that distance through Christ, through God who is present to all people, all times, all places. And so by entering into the mystery of God, we enter into the mystery of God doing his work in the world in a particular moment in time. And so it's interesting to hear Jews talk about the Passover Seder. And so the language is not that um, our ancestors came out of Egypt and so on, but we 
we came out of Egypt. And in a sense, that's what we're talking about with the Lord's Supper, with Holy Communion, with the Mass, with the great offering, the divine liturgy, is that entering into that mystery of God in the current present day, we span the breadth of time. And so kneeling at the altar in a particular place, we are also mystically kneeling at Calvary, at the altar, the altar of the cross, where the priest ministers pouring out his body and blood on our behalf. The priest, like me, who stands at the altar in a particular church, is standing in for the priest. We have just one great high priest who offered himself. So he is the both, both the priest and the victim. And when we say victim, it's kind of unfortunate the way that term has evolved in its usage. Um, it's not like someone who is, you know, the victim of a crime. The word simply means a sacrificial offering. So Jesus makes a gift of himself to God the Father on our behalf. He offers himself. So he is the both the, the priest and the victim. And he offers his body and blood. In the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which is worth reading, by the way, he talks about kind of the mystical, spiritual meaning of these things, that in offering himself on the cross, and uh, Jesus goes into the sanctuary of heaven, like the great high priest on the Day of Atonement, not to offer the blood of bulls and goats on the altar, but to offer his own blood to atone for the sins of the world. And so Jesus is always uh, pleading his own sacrifice on our behalf. In Hebrews it says he constantly, continuously makes intercession for us. So when we talk about Jesus, is, um, when he ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not like he's you know, having a big holiday and taking, the, taking eternity off. It simply means that he assumes a position of authority, or we might say resumes his position of authority uh, in heaven. But he still does his work of intercession, of pleading his merits on our behalf. And so that's what we do also when we bring forth bread and wine, tokens of ourselves. God accepts them, consecrates them, makes them into his own offering of his body and blood, and uh, returns the offering to us to share uh, with us in a communion sacrifice. So just a little bit of the kind of basics about what is going on here. And this comes from the Catechism of the 79 Prayer Book, which is right there in the back of the book. What is the Holy Eucharist? It says it is the sacrament commanded by Christ for the continual remembrance of his life, death, and resurrection until his coming again. And so it is, when you think about the, the ministry and the offering of Jesus, we focus very narrowly, very often, on a moment in time, Jesus dying on the cross. But in a sense, the offering of himself spans his entire earthly life and ministry. Uh, when he pours out himself, the kenosis, he humbles himself. When he's born, when he's incarnated, all the way back to the Annunciation. And then he pours himself out even unto death, death of a cross, death on a cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, raised him up, given him the resurrection and the ascension and so on. And so all of that is a part of the commemoration. 
Why is the Eucharist called a sacrifice? Because the Eucharist, the church's sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and by the way, thanksgiving is literally the Greek word Eucharistia, it's the way by which the sacrifice of Christ is made present and in which he unites us to his one offering of himself. And this is the only way that we become acceptable to God and fit for heaven when we're joined to Jesus and made acceptable through him. And that's one of the things that's going on at the altar. So it's not just that we get to kneel at Calvary, but it's also that God comes to us. So there's kind of an overlap of heaven and earth. That's what the sanctuary is all about. The holy place is that thin veil where heaven and earth overlap, where different moments of time overlap, where Christ comes to us and we get to go to him. And so the sacrifice of Christ is made present and we are made present to it. The Didache says, oh, by the way, the Didache, which means teaching, uh, the, the full title is, the, I think, The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's one of these early church handbooks. So this is probably from the first century, about the year 70 A.D., uh, really the New Testament era. And uh, so they had a lot of, you know, kind of recommendations and guidelines about how to do this Christian thing. So it said, assemble on the Lord's Day. That's Sunday, by the way, the day of the resurrection. And break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first, make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. And of course, if we learn anything from the Old Testament all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel, is that God only receives and accepts a sacrifice that is offered with a sincere, pure heart. The Didache says, Anyone who has a difference with this fellow is not to take part with you until he has been reconciled, so as to avoid any profanation of your sacrifice. For this is the offering which the Lord, of which the Lord has said, and this is a quote from Malachi 1.11. Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. St. Ignatius of Antioch, he's writing about the year uh, 100. He said, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ and but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice. And that kind of oneness has become a part of our tradition. So the ancient tradition is that um, the Eucharist was only offered once on one, uh, once on one altar. So that if you had more than one offering, you had to have a different altar. And that's why uh, in the Middle Ages you had little side chapels proliferate all over the place. So each priest could offer his own daily sacrifice. And then if he only had one altar, then he had to take turns. But if he had an altar for each priest, then each one could offer the sacrifice each day. And this idea of only receiving communion at a maximum of one per day um, is also there to kind of undergird the idea that um, this is not a crudely material thing. So to, if, I, if I eat more than one host, I'm getting more Jesus. That's not how it works. You know, I, I have to consume the leftovers at the end of distributing Holy Communion. That doesn't mean I get, you know, 10 or 20 times more Jesus than somebody else 
that received. No, we're put in touch with Jesus. There's only one Jesus. Um, even the smallest fragment is the, the full, true, real presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and so on. And so that oneness is a part of our tradition. Only have one single altar of sacrifice. By what other names is this service known? It says the Holy Eucharist is called the Lord's Supper. And, and there's, in our way of using the words, there's kind of a distinction. We talk about Last Supper, and we usually mean the one that Jesus celebrated with his apostles on the night that he, that he was betrayed. And then the Lord's Supper, the way we usually use it, is the ones that come after that, that we do to carry out his command, do this in remembrance of me. And it's called the Holy Communion, so a reminder about how Jesus, when we receive the sacrament, and we should only receive it, remember as the Didache said, when we're really ready, when we have prepared our hearts, when our heart is clean, and so on. And it reminds us that that is the sacrament, that is the mechanism, the vehicle to connect us with Christ. So just as we were incorporated into Christ and our baptism, that renews that union, that communion with God. We are made one with him and he with us, as Jesus talked about in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. It says it's also known as the divine liturgy. So this is the Eastern term that's most common. The liturgy is the work on behalf of the people, the offering of prayers and sacrifice and so on. And it's, of course, something that's not ours. It's divine. It comes from God. It's also called the Mass in the Western Church, which is a, a, a curious little development. Uh, it's, it's kind of not exactly clear how that happened. But it seems that um, the, the word basically means the sending forth, the dismissal. And so there, in the ancient liturgy of the West, there were two dismissals. There was the dismissal of the catechumens about halfway through. So that first part was called the Mass of the Catechumens. And then there was the Mass of the Faithful. So everyone that was left would be dismissed at the end of everything at the end. So that part was called the Mass of the Faithful. So I guess the, when you're coming, you say, I'm coming for the Mass. You're saying, I'm coming until I'm dismissed. So I'm coming for the whole thing. And so attending Mass meant to say, I'm attending the entire liturgy. Um, and of course, there was this great kind of graduation. Once you were baptized, now you were able to stay for the whole thing. And you could stay until the Mass, the final dismissal of the faithful at the end. There's also kind of an interesting um, symbolic relation to how else the, uh, the word was used. So there's a ascending forth, of course, and we're, when we're dismissed at the end of the liturgy, we're sent out into the world to carry the cross, to live Christian lives of virtue and witness to others, to share the gospel, to uh, bring it to the ends of the earth, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them the commandments of Christ, and so on. And also there was this uh, idea of vindication. So missio would be the word that a judge would use at the end of your trial. You know, you may go forth, you are free to go. You are dismissed as one who is innocent. And so there's this vindication uh, aspect of the use of that word that's very charming as well. And then finally, it's called the anaphora or the great offering, another Eastern term, the holy sacrifice, the great offering of bread and wine that God accepts, consecrates to be his own offering to the Father of his body and blood. What is the outward visible sign in the Eucharist? The outward visible sign is 
bread and wine, given and received according to Christ's command. And by the way, we have no authority whatsoever to change that. And so, incidentally, that's why we say wine rather than grape juice. Now, natural grape juice, what's called mustum, is permissible. For example, if you have a priest who's an alcoholic and you want to try to avoid problems. Um, but you have to remember that grapes, like any other fruit, start fermenting on the vine. I mean, that's just a natural process that happens and then continues and is kind of brought to uh, fruition um, in the fermentation process and being put in barrels and so on. And then uh, what we have in the 1800s was the development of Welch's grape juice, where we interrupt that fermentation process and um, molecularly change it. And so it's different. It's altered. It's not pure. And so basically that's why we use wine rather than grape juice is because we're talking about something that is pure, that is what Jesus used, regardless of the alcoholic content. It's, the idea is that it's natural. It's real. And it's also just grapes. It's not blended with other fruits. And you have to be very careful um, for clergy, um, always get sacramentally approved wine, which is just an indication that it's pure, that it's not blended with other fruits to make a certain palate to be commercially appealing and unique uh, on the shelf uh, at the grocery store where you go to buy your table wine. And then as far as the, uh, the bread, it has to be the pure, um, and in the West it's unleavened, um, wheat flour bread. Uh, so also be aware of the, uh, the gluten-free options. So there is a legitimate, um, extremely low-gluten wheat bread that is available. So if you have somebody with that problem, um, there is a, a solution for that. Also, the person can simply receive the, the chalice only. Uh, but it has to be wheat bread and, uh, you know, not mixed with other things and not not kind of cake or something like that, and not rice bread or potato bread or some other kind of bread, only wheat bread and pure wine. What are the benefits which we receive in the Lord's Supper? The benefits we receive are the forgiveness of our sins, the strengthening of our union with Christ and one another, and the foretaste of the heavenly banquet, which is our nourishment and eternal life. And so just like we span time and space to go back to Calvary, we also kind of span time and space to go to heaven. So it is our first foretaste, little, little taste of heaven. What is required? It is required that we should examine our lives, repent of our sins, and be in love and charity with all people. Of course, it's also required that we're baptized, but we've kind of gotten beyond this point. Once you're baptized, what is required? You don't have to receive communion every time you go to Mass. Uh, but what is required every time you receive communion for the baptized is that you first look inward, take an account of your actions, and make sure that you are in love and charity with all people. And if you have sin to clean up, to bag up and give to Christ, then do so. And uh, if that is a serious thing, then you need to go to a priest for absolution for that. Uh, just a few quotes to wrap up our time together. St. Justin Martyr wrote, We call this food Eucharist, 
and no one is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching to be true, and who has been washed in the washing which is for the remission of sins and for regeneration, that is, for baptism, and is thereby living as Christ enjoined. For not as uncommon bread nor common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the word of God and has both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. So this is in his first apology, uh, Justin Martyr's writing, early 100s. Um, He died, I think, 151. And there he's saying that the Eucharist, the bread and wine after the consecration, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. William Forbes, the Anglican Bishop of Edinburgh and professor at Aberdeen University, and this is around uh, 1600, Um, he wrote in his... uh, work, and I'm not going to give the Latin title, I'm going to give the English title, Modest Peacemaking Considerations. He says, quote, the Holy Fathers say very often that in the Eucharist, Christ's body itself is offered and sacrificed, as appears from almost numberless places. But so that not all the properties of a sacrifice are properly and really preserved, but by way of commemoration and representation of that which was performed once for all, in that one only sacrifice of the cross, whereby Christ, our high priest, consummated all other sacrifices, and by pious prayer, which the ministers of the church most humbly beseech God the Father on account of the perpetual victim of that one only sacrifice, which is seated in heaven on the right hand of the Father, and in an ineffable manner, present on the holy table, that he would grant that the virtue and grace of this perpetual victim may be efficacious and salutary to his church for all the necessities of body and soul. And then he went on to say, the sacrifice which is performed in the supper is not merely Eucharistic, but also in a sound sense propitiatory, and is profitable not only to very many of the living, but of the departed also. So basically what he's getting at there is that what we're talking about in the Eucharistic sacrifice is not something that is has all the parts in and of itself. That is, Jesus is not slaughtered. Like, he, like a sacrificial victim, like offering a lamb back in the Old Testament, the lamb's neck would be slit and its blood drained and so on. That's all happened at the cross. But what we do is we join into Jesus' one offering of himself that happened at a moment in time. And so that's how it becomes a true sacrifice. Last uh, quote from Thomas Rattray, another Anglican bishop in the Scottish Episcopal Church. Uh, And he is about 1700, so about 100 years later. In his work uh, called Some Particular Instructions Concerning the Christian Covenant and the Mysteries by Which It is Transacted and Maintained of 1748, what a title, he wrote as follows, quote, Then as Christ offered up his body and blood to God the Father under the symbols of bread and wine as a sacrifice to be slain on the cross for our redemption, so here the priest offereth up bread, the bread and the cup as the symbols of the sacrifice of his body and blood thus once offered up by him, and thereby commemor- commemorateth it 
before God with thanksgiving, after which he prays that God would favorably accept this commemorative sacrifice by sending down upon it his Holy Spirit, that by his descent upon them he may make this bread and cup as to be symbols or antitypes of the body and blood of Christ. Then the priest maketh intercession in virtue of this sacrifice thus offered up in commemoration of and in union with the one great personal sacrifice of Christ for the whole Catholic Church, and pleadeth the merits of this one sacrifice in behalf of all estates and conditions of men, offering this memorial thereof not only for the living, but also for the dead, in commemoration of the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, and of all the saints who have pleased God in their several generations from the beginning of the world, and for the rest, light and peace, and a blessed resurrection, and a merciful trial in the day of the Lord, to all the faithful departed. Plenty of reasons why the Mass should matter to you, because it is the Mass that matters. Well, God bless you. We'll talk again next week, and uh, until then, see you around. God bless. Please like and share, and we will see you there.